Hey there, folks. Alex Lokes here, and this is February, and the skies are still gray here in Canada. But that's all right. We are going to be talking about some of the fastest lenses that you can get for your uh, camera these days, and that is, of course, the 50mm lenses. Everyone has probably shot one of these. They usually come standard. They're actually called the normal lens, so let's just get into it. Coming to you live from Toronto, Canada, this is the Classic Camera Revival. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you certainly will after listening to our show. So first up, um, probably wondering why the uh, 50mm is the standard lens. And um, actually, it was Bill Smith who shared an article with us uh, about it. So we're going to let him discuss why the 50 is normal, unlike us. Well, what is normal these days? Uh, granted, Nothing. That's, that, that's, a, that's an open-ended question for this kind of podcast. 50-millimeter lenses, uh, they have been called the Nifty 50. They're the ones that you historically came standard with your camera if you bought one in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, generally, they came 50.18, 50F2, because you're buying it with the camera. The more expensive 1.4, 1.2s, and all those, you got to pay a little bit more, and they come in a smaller box complete with the choir behind it when they when it's handed over the counter uh why 50 millimeter it is the 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 grand compromise you can use this uh for landscapes you can use this for street photography uh you can use this for portraiture uh photojournalists like uh, robert kappa and Henri cartier Bresson made their entire careers on this focal length that is why the 50 millimeter it is the swiss army knife of lenses and there have been times i've gone out to shoot and sometimes i will have a three or four lenses with me and all the time most of the time it's it's just the 50 that gets used that sounds about right well the whole thing the whole key about the 50 millimeter lens is it's basically designed under a focal length of what you can see with your normal sharpness of your vision we're not talking about peripherals we're not talking anything like that it's directly in front of you if you look through a 50 mil lens it will basically frame up, if you have your other eye open, roughly what is sharp directly in front of your eye. And it's a great little focal window. Absolutely. So today we have a special treat for you guys. We are actually going to be going through every single Nikon 50mm lens ever produced. From the Canon FD 1.4. Oh, wait, that's not Nikon? I am, of course, kidding. <laughs> um... We actually have a fantastic selection of 50s sitting around the table. So we are actually going to be starting off with Canon and not the 51.8, not the nifty 50, those $100 lenses that you can get in both Nikon and Canon autofocus. We're going back to the manual focus FD mount and the 51.4. And to bring us that, we have both Bill and Mike. Thank you, Alex. Uh, the 50 FD 51.4, introduced in 1971, and sadly, uh, the production run came to an end in the early 1990s when the EOS mount became uh, the de facto standard for Canon. Uh, the 51.4 came in three flavors. Uh, the Chrome Nose One, which was made in 71 to 1973, it had what was called the Spectra coating on it, uh, this is the one lens you would get for your um, Canon F1 if you're shooting a pro body or you're running with an FTB and you want to sort of goose it up a little bit, you get the 1.4 with it. Especially if you want to stay 
like uh, what what is the word I'm looking for? Like uh, age age it's appropriate. The second one, and it's the one a lot of people have come across in their travels, uh, particularly if they're shooting a gun, an F1, the FTBN, the EF, which is another interesting oddball camera, which uh, it flies below the radar, but we're not talking about cameras today. Uh, the AE1 and the other early A series, and that's the SSC. That was made from roughly 73 to 90. I think it had a seven-year production run. Something along those lines. Uh, uh, they're excellent lenses. I mean, granted, yes, it's the breech lock, but compared to... Compared to uh, the Nifty 50, it's got a great weight. Oh, yeah, and it took a 55-millimeter filter. um, So if you've got, like, 55-millimeter UV, skylight, polarizers, you're good to go with this focal length. And from roughly 1980 onwards to the end of the production was the new FD, I guess, people out in... uh, FDN, NFD, I'm not quite sure. It depends on who you are. So the breech lock is gone. It's kind of sort of like a bayonet but not quite it was sort of like a compromise it was also a lighter lens like the 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 breech lock ones came in over about i think 360 grams whereas the uh the fdn lenses uh were much lighter they came in at um i think 240 grams and again it took a 50 millimeter uh, 52 millimeter filter thread so Again, if you're using <clears throat> Nikon uh, glass, you can use those filters on this series lens as well. It too was also came with this the what is known as the Super Spectra Coating or SSC. Uh, to be honest, what's so special about this lens? This is one lens that um, I think uh, it, it was one up on the, the Nikkor glass because it was sharp, edge to edge, even wide open. And it, a lot of people sort of consider the SSC 514 the sort of reference lens for color photography. Back yeah. in the mid, probably the middle to later 70s. So it's sort of like if you're looking to get one and you're not going to look in the, to drop a small fortune, because the FDN lenses do command a small premium. You're paying for less weight, which you know it doesn't sound it sounds counterintuitive, but believe me, if you're out hiking in the woods, yeah, you want the FDN lenses. Well, especially if you consider that a lot of the cameras that this lens fits on, they're metal bodies. These aren't these modern plastic fantastic models. These are solid metal bodies. They are they are actually little tanks, especially since it's cameras like the A1, the uh, F1 that a lot of people have it on, or the EF. Now, of course, like the A-series, a like the AE-1, the A-1, and the AE-1 program do have a have that plastic top. They're still not that light. No, they're still, they're actually quite robust. Um, the other thing about these lenses, the one thing you do have to be mindful of if you're out hunting for one, they are prone to haze. Haze, fungus, yeah. Yeah, the usual suspects. <laughs> and Maybe slow little, aperture blades. They're, again, if the 1.4s are expensive enough, uh, getting if, if if it's not a big problem, yeah, they are worth getting overhauled. But if it's like really far gone, uh, yeah, toss it and get another one. I mean, yep. A lot of time, unless you really want the bayonet style FD mount lens, then you're going to end up paying a premium. But seriously, the breech lock, it's the same lens construction, the same coating, nothing's changed. Actually, yeah, the the lens formula is the same. Four and doing, six. Yeah. Uh, six lens groups, six and four. seven elements, and eight aperture blades. And eight aperture blades. 
So again, if you're a Canon shooter, this is the lens you want. Save your nickels and dimes. Get the 51.4. You'll be happy. (laughs) All right. And great way to uh, segue from our last episode with uh, cheap photography the Canon 51.8. I mean, you can get these lenses for as, as cheap as like 15 bucks. Exactly. And throw it with, throw it on to mm-hmm. a T50, and you've got super cheap, an all around entryway into film photography. Or with the T50, you can go and splurge and get the uh, 51.4. Nice. And going from cheap to expensive, we have like a glass. Oh, good God. You the choir. Oh boy, yes. <laughs> and the uh, angels have the sung, abuse, and we have blue sky. The, the abuse you take is a like a man. So for the price of a small car, you can get a cheap. point nine five. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. No, we're not talking about the uh, not so nifty, not deluxe. Uh, 50 so uh, we're going to talk about the uh, the Sumicron 50 um, which is I guess nifty if you have a Leica or enjoy Leica and don't enjoy money in your bank account but uh, uh, not the cheapest lens around um, I think a used market now for uh, like a type 5 or version 5 um, Sumicron 50 is gonna run you in the neighborhood of about two thousand dollars and probably about thirty five hundred, four thousand new, um, and then you could also go with the the new version, the um, uh, a spherical um, version that has some spherical elements in it. Um, I think that runs at about ten to fifteen thousand dollars. And here it is. This is the part Ridiculous where Leica named thing. everything appropriately. Was the double stroke? You had a stroke for the price of the camera, and then you had your second immediate laughter with the price of the lens. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, so the interesting thing about the the Sumicron uh, line of lenses is it, it has quite a history. There's, they've actually made six versions of it uh, since its um, uh, since its inception in uh, the early '50s. So they made a version from 1953 to 1960, and then there was one from '56 to '68, etc. And uh, anyway, there's been a bunch of them. Um, a couple versions were made uh, here in the Great White North, up here in Canada, in Midland, Ontario. Um, just so you know, um, the Canadian version of the lens is just as good as any of the German versions. Same engineering, same design, same quality uh, assurance. And the nice thing about it, it's probably about two-thirds of the price. Um, because uh, those of us that are afflicted with... Um, uh, uh, Leica addiction. There, I think, comes in 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 sort of two trains. There are the people that just like to walk around with something with a red dot that says Leica on it, so they look like they're a photographer. And then there's the real picky camera snobs that love this stuff. Um, and um, I put myself in the latter category. I am a bit of a camera snob, but I, uh, I uh, just a, just a only bit. a bit, only a bit. Um, that's a whole other podcast, Bill. I see you itching to say something. <laughs> and that thought just went away. <laughs> um, but in any case, uh, so <laughs> there's been a few different versions. Um, the earlier versions were collapsible uh, lenses, and then they moved away from that. Actually, I have a collapsible Type 1 uh, mm-hmm. Sumicron on my M3. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful lens. They are all exquisite pieces of glass. They are extremely sharp. They all res, um, resolve extremely well. 
Um, the one I have is a um, uh, is a version five, uh, which was optimized for digital uh, because I have both an M6 and an M240, or I just a 240, I think they call it, which is their digital um, camera. Um, they did change the design um, uh, a few different times. The earlier version, so from essentially from 53 to 1979, so versions uh, types 1 through type 3, all had 10-blade uh, apertures, and then uh, they moved to 8-blades uh, from that point uh, after. There is one... Um, sort of black sheep, sort of, if you will, in the family, which is the Type 3. Um, and I guess they changed the design a little bit um, with this lens. Maybe they were trying to reduce cost or who knows, but um, uh, it was essentially designed to have a little bit higher con uh, contrast, but um, not as sharp as the other versions of the lens for some reason. Now, I say this is a black sheep because... Um, in the used market, when people see Type 3, they always demand some kind of discount for it. I actually had a Type 3 um, lens, and the only reason I sold it was because I wanted a Type 5 because I had the digital camera as well. Um, and the Type 3 had a separate, um, uh, had a separate uh, uh, lens hood for it. And that lens hood alone was like two or $300, which is you know insane because it says Leica on it. Like his lens caps cost more than Spotmatics for some reason, but um, did it go on the M5? <laughs> yeah, possibly went on. They possibly was for the M5, the other black sheep of Leica. Um, but you know what? It's a terrific lens. It resolves really well. I really liked the fall off, the out of focus areas. Um, I like the version that I have, the version five, because it has a built in uh, retractable. Um, lens hood, which is really cool. Um, all Summicrons are um, are uh, f two uh, glass uh, uh, apertures, um, and essentially, um, yeah, you know, Leica's kind of interesting. Just some some nerdy facts for you. Um, they, they all have uh, a naming convention for all of their lenses, and so Summicron is it's two two words. The uh, the Summa was um, uh, taken from the old. Um, Sumar lenses, um, so those were like the the uh, the three the Leica threes and three Fs and that sort yep. of thing. I had a I had a Sumatar with my three C. Yeah, incredible pieces of mm. glass for like I mean stuff that was made prior to 1950. Uh, like the you know the quality uh, of that glass is spectacular, and of course Kron refers to um, a company called Crown Glass. Uh, and Crown Glass was a, a glass company that was uh, bought by Lights. Um, and the interesting thing about Crown Glass, uh, Crown Glass is a special type of glass that has a very, very low refractive index. Um, and that's because it's not made with um, any iron or lead inside of the glass. So, um, you know, it's probably very similar to like an anti-Newton type of glass. Um, I'm sure it's a little bit more sophisticated than just your average like anti-Newton glass right. that you would use in an enlarger. Um, and that's about it. So uh, they're, you know, spectacular uh, pieces of glass. Uh, if you're going to get into the Leica system, um, I don't recommend buying a Leica body because, uh, and of course I preface this by saying, if you're on a budget, don't go for the Leica body. Get no. like a Bessa R2M or something yep. like that. And go buy yourself a beautiful piece of Leica glass. Absolutely. It, you know, it, it always floors me that people will go and save up all this money and go buy themselves an M something. And then 
you know, put a, a different brand of glass on it. Like the like I I just don't get it. Like the whole point of of getting into the Leica system is for the optical quality that you get oh. from it. And when I say quality, I want to I want to make sure that that's taken into context. I don't mean quality in this case doesn't mean good. I mean attributes. Yes. Of the glass. Leica is not necessarily better than any other brand out there. It just has different attributes to the image. So That's right. If that's what you're after, do it, but and if you're not, um, if you're just buying Leica for the sake of buying, buying Leica, Leica. Um, yeah, hey, you know what? Um, I got some swampland for sale, um, probably right, right about uh, where Andre Dominguez lives in Miami, someplace. <laughs> but uh, you know, and some cheap watches. Uh, well, going from one German town to another, um, we're going to the small town. Well, it's not a small; it's a medium-sized city, um, the city of Jena where in 1846, Carl Zeiss saw its um, creation. Now, um, they they started, they produced optics right from the get-go. They mostly produced microscopes, and then eventually binoculars, and eventually camera optics. Um, of course, being German, they were bombed back into the Stone Age during World War II, and quickly found themselves under Soviet occupation, even though they were initially liberated by the Americans. Um, but before it could get incorporated into the Soviet zone, um, the U.S. troops moved um, a lot of their um, a lot of the operations to Stuttgart, um, to the Contessa factory. Now, remember Contessa. So in 1947, um, operations were restarted and um, both on the Soviet side and on the Allied side, the Western side. Um, so if you're looking at post-World War II Zeiss lenses, you'll probably see two different types. You'll see Carl Zeiss, you'll see Zeiss Jenna, and you'll also see Zeiss Opton. Now, the Zeiss Opton were actually Eastern-built cameras and optics, but sold on the western side of the Iron Curtain. Zeiss Jenna were built on the eastern side of the Iron Curtain, but sold in the west. So, the lens I want to talk about is an eastern-built lens, but sold in the west. So it's Zeiss Opton. And I am, of course, talking about the Zeiss Opton Sonar 50mm f1.5. Now, the Sonar lens dates all the way back to uh, the early early 20th century, end of the uh, 1910s, 1919. Um, and that, um, and it was, it's a, another Zeiss design lens. It's a Tessar-style lens. But in 1919, it was limited to F4.5, and that was done by the Nattel company. Nattel merged with Contessa. And Contessa, in 1926, was merged with our friends at Zeiss. That's right. That's where we get Zeiss icon from. So, by 1929, Zeiss had improved the sonar model and had brought it up to an aperture of f2. And then in 1932, they brought it up to f1.5, which is where this lens comes in today. This lens pretty much lives on my Contax 3A. It is my favorite lens for this camera, and probably because I'm a big fan of Robert Kappa, 
the 50 sonar was probably the one that that Kappa took with him. Well, I'm pretty 100% sure it's the the model of lens that Kappa took with him. Uh, of course, my lens does not date to the days of Kappa. My lens, based on the serial number, is post-war, 1952. Um, based on the serial number, perfect lens for this camera. The only problem is because it's on the uh, Contax 3A, it's um, a Contax mount, so it doesn't have a focusing helical. The focusing is on the body itself. So finding an adapter to use it on an M39 or even my E-mount is incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive. There is someone out there that does make an M-mount adapter for them. Yes, I know. I know. Out of Venezuela. Yeah. There's. So does the whole body move in and out then? Yeah. So that's the lens and that's the body. Oh, wow. Yeah, the helical is in the body, not the lens. Interesting. Almost like a TLR kind of uh, setup. Yeah. 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 Um, But what's really cool is the um, aperture shape. Um, is the uh, is the aperture shape, and it's it kind of looks like a, a little bit of um a sunflower. It um it kind of gives uh, some interesting out of focus elements to the uh, to the setup. And that is not a defect to that original lens. If, no. if you do some googling around, you'll find people asking. I just got this lens, and uh, I thought an aperture was supposed to be as round as possible, and this is somewhat less than perfectly round. <laughs> no, and you know what that that really adds to the charm of it. And what's also nice about this is that it is a coated lens. It has the uh, um, Zeiss T coating, which um, which actually dates back to 1935, and it was initially developed for their binoculars and um, rifle scopes. And it's designed to reduce the amount of reflection on it. So where lights actually um, got glass that was designed to do that, other companies like Kodak with their L coating and Zeiss with their T coating, and eventually in the 70s, a T star coating, actually put a coating on the glass to help reduce reduce the reflection. It's a compact design. Um, the sonar design, especially the 50 millimeter, was designed more for rangefinder cameras than SLRs because of the uh, lens grouping design. Um, it would actually have interference with the... Um, with the mirror on an SLR, which is why on the Hasselblads, you see planars instead of sonars. And a sonar and a planar are about equivalent in contrast, except there's lower chromatic aberrations with the planar design. But of interesting note, as mentioned, the Soviets also got their hands on the Jenna facility, and they took the sonar design and made the Jupiter 8. And no, we're not lost in space here, folks. <laughs> and so far this episode, we've talked about some amazing, high quality, so sharp it'll cut your eyes kind of lenses. I'm going to change things up a bit and talk about the Jupiter 8. If you shoot the Jupiter 8, like I've got the 50 millimeter Jupiter 8, it's F2, that's why they call it the Jupiter 8. If you shoot that lens wide open, you'll get images that are soft, dreamy, um, artistic, sensuous. Uh, I'm trying to think of better ways than saying god-awful. <laughs> but uh, it, it is... So you're trying to sugarcoat it's blurry? It's, it's a bit blurry. Um, Dirty glasses? The, the joke about the Jupiter 8 is the 8 refers to the minimum f-stop you can use for acceptable sharpness. <laughs> uh, 
But, but basically, if you stop it down to F4, things start to get okay in the, in the center. And let's face it, having blurred corners, like if you're doing some portraits, that is, that's not a bad thing. It's, it's a fun little lens to use. Like it, it has its own kind of look. And, let's, and to be honest, it's similar to the sonar formula that uh, if you take a sonar, like wide open, like let's say the, the, the sonar 1.5, uh, wide open, that is not a particularly sharp lens. It has its own aesthetic. It's very nice, but it's not tack sharp. You stop it down to 5.6 or f8, you, that sharpness starts to come in. And it's the same thing with uh, this 50 millimeter f2, because it's just basically a sonar f2. You get it down to an f8, f11, and it's reasonably sharp. Uh, it's not a bad little lens. The one I have, it's, it's aluminum body, and so they're not the most durable of lenses. Uh, they're cheap, but when you buy a lens like this, you sort of have to go into it. You might know, let's say if you buy three, two of them will be usable. Uh, it's, that, it's that good old uh, Soviet uh, quality control. Now, one thing you do have to keep in mind with, uh, with the Jupiter 8 lens, indeed any Soviet or FSU 39mm lens is they are compatible-ish with, let's say, Leica bodies like the Barnack Leicas or the Voigtlanders, but there is a limit because of what's called the collimation or that the flange distance is slightly different. So typically, if you're going to shoot one of these wide open, like at f2, at minimum focusing distance, let's say on a Barnack Leica or a Voigtlander R2M, for example, you may see focusing error. Now, the... Um, How can you tell it's a Jupiter 8? That's, that's true. <laughs> um, no, you can tell. I've shot with yeah. a Jupiter 8 on a Leica 3A, and... So it's just, you, it's extra blurry? It's, it's terrible. I, I, think, I think I've showed John the results before. I've since removed them from any of my public streams. They're, they're pretty atrocious. So I'll say, I will say two things. There can be such a margin of error on these lenses that there are people who will honestly say, I've never had that problem because there's errors on the good side. Um, the other thing I'd say is the, uh, the best places to use the 50 Jupiter 8 is on something like, like I have mine on a Zorky 4. Uh, it's not going to have that problem. Also, I should say, is you can get the, the Jupiter 8s for the contacts mount do not have that problem. You can use your Jupiter 8 on the, uh, the contacts, like the 3-3A, 2-2A stuff, and you can also use them on the, uh, the Kiev, which is the Soviet copy of the contacts. So if you're looking for a fun lens that uh, will never be mistaken for a Summicron, why not give one a try? Have some fun. Yeah, there's also the, um, if you want it also similar to the uh, Sonar 1.5, there's also the Jupiter 3, but in comparison to price of the Jupiter 8, you start paying prices that are very similar to the contacts line. Absolutely. And from the cheap to the inexpensive, we promised no Nikon. Of course, we lied. We have Trevor with the Series E Nikon. Yes. Um, I was fortunate uh, to experience the uh, 50E lens uh, 1.8 um, when I bought an FG about uh, 20 some odd years ago. 
uh, to replace a camera that unfortunately had gone uh, been damaged, and um, found out that uh, there was a whole series of e-lenses from 28 to 70 to 200, um, and that they were in manufacturing from 1977 to about 82, 83 ish. Um, they came standard on. Uh, Cameras such as the FG, the FE, uh, sorry, the, uh, what was it, the, oh, what was it? Um, anyway, several uh, so-called entry-level Nikons. Um, they had all this uh, very similar high-grade Nikon glass, but they had plastic bodies, um, which made them uh, much lighter and uh, were, you know, made them cheaper to manufacture and to purchase. Uh, but were just as sharp and just as reliable um, as uh, the regular um, metal-bodied uh, Nikons. Uh, one of the interesting lenses that they actually did make with the 70-210, it had a minimal focusing distance of two feet, which was unheard of um, for a uh, zoom lens, um, especially at that time. Um, it's an F4, but still, minimal focusing of t uh, in the macro range on the uh, 70-210 was only two feet. Um, the all the e lenses were really fun and cheap and cheerful, and uh, if you find one, don't hesitate. There's really nothing wrong with them. Not at all. I've shot um, I've shot the twenty eight two eight series E and the fifty series E. Beautiful lenses, and would stand up to my um, stand up to my fifty one point four any day. Yeah. Yeah, like I've I've even shot the fifty one point eight. Then they are cheap and cheerful lenses, but the results you get from them are much more than just cheap and cheerful. Yeah, absolutely. They're also one of the first ones that were AIS um, to go yes. along with the FA mm -hmm. um, yep. with the program and aperture uh, auto uh, um, metering systems on it. So yep. it was one of the first ones to do, do that before they got into the AIS regular Nikkor lenses. So. Absolutely. Well, um, one thing that we as photographers do, and it's not just the fact that our bookshelves are filled with cameras and lenses and films, they are actually also filled with books, real live books. And I love the fact that there is around the table, we probably have enough to um, have an entire library that we could open up and loan out our books. Um, a lot of times we use books for um, learning or just simply for inspiration. So we are going to have a little bit of a show and tell in regards to books. And first and foremost is a book that every photographer, whether you are film or digital, should read. Um, and that is Understanding Exposure. All right. So, yes, um, that is a great description, actually, Alex. And um, Understanding Exposure is um, a book by uh, Brian Peterson. Um, there's a few different versions out there. I'm not sure what the latest version is, but um, I've read uh, version one and version three. Um, obviously, as the later versions have come out, they are more geared towards exposing, exposing to the right or for highlights, uh, for digital systems and that sort of thing. But the first version is uh, talks a lot more about uh, exposure techniques uh, for using film um, and it explains it in a really uh, easy to understand way. Now, certainly, if you are a trained photographer... This book is not for you because you've, you know, learned a lot of this stuff already. 
but um, but it's it, always good to keep it uh, on on reference. Absolutely. Look, I've been shooting uh, for thirty years, and I still use it as a reference. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes you forget. You're like, oh, what you know? What should I do in this particular situation? So the way that um, Brian Peterson has has written this book is extremely helpful. It's um, it gives you little tips and 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 techniques uh, for particular lighting situations. So where do you um, uh, where do you point your lens at a particular at a sun for a sunset to get the right exposure, um, and it teaches you how to do that, and it uses terminology that you can you can uh, easily understand and recall. Like it, you know, they call it the uh, uh, the Wright brothers and the Left brothers, and for different scenarios, and you know, um, uh, explains the uh, the exposure triangle in very very simple terms. You know, in my experience, I've been shooting a long time. I hang out with a lot of people that have been shooting a long time. We rarely talk about the basics of uh, exposure techniques and photography. You know, when once you're doing this for a long time, you you talk a lot more about the creative aspect uh, of photography. But it's a really good thing to revisit this stuff, regardless how long you've been shooting. Now, for people that are just getting into film photography, I... Uh, I, you know, I have the the um, the privilege sometimes to uh, you know participate in a lot of different uh, um, uh, film photography podcasts and groups, and there's a lot of questions that um, I get asked, and I see others other uh, experienced photographers being asked, um, and they're asking a lot about different images. But then, if you look at that image, you see a lot of the basics of exposure were not met, and then these people that are asking these questions are. Um, they're wondering why is the consistency of their images not there, and that's mm. because photography is not something you don't learn the tricks of the trade first. You learn the trade first. That's right. Then you can learn the tricks. And this book gives you a lot of the good fundamental things. Certainly, I would recommend if you, are, <laughs> pardon me, if you are new to photography in general, film or digital, go to a local community college, take a basic photography class, go to a reputable camera store. Take that class. Understand yeah. the concept behind exposure, and then learn how. Like learning how to use your gear is completely secondary. If you Absolutely. don't understand the concept of what you're trying to achieve, you're never going to achieve what you're hoping to. So you know, I think this is a book. It's a must read for um, any new photographer, film or digital. Um, anyone that has got experience but hasn't actually learned the the basic techniques or you know has learned it through um, conversations and tips and hints with you know discussions over coffee or beers with their photography friends, read this book. It will give you a lot of techniques that you can then expand upon and apply as your creative uh, your creative uh, um, uh, expectations or or vision um, gets more and more sophisticated. Absolutely. And from the trade to the tricks, we have the trilogy that was written by the man himself. I'm, of course, talking about the camera, the negative, and the print by Ansel Adams. Yes, uh, I got those books very early on as a gift and uh, read through them, and I found them invaluable um, when learning how to do my own printing, um, how to develop film, um, how to even shoot towards uh, the look, um, knowing what I was going to be doing in the darkroom um, with processing the film as well as then processing um, the uh, the prints themselves. Um, it, a lot of it is 
quite technical, so it's not the sort of thing that you just kind of start off with. Um, and um, Ansel Adams did have some um, very, um, what would you, overly technical ways of processing and that sort of thing, because yes. he would have multiple developers, multiple stops, multiple washes, and that sort of thing. Um, it is, there are simpler ways to do it, um, but uh, it, it really put forward the art form of processing the negative as well as the uh, the print for me and learning how to aim for that look and that um, the feeling and tonality, the shadows, the highlights um, when processing the film, knowing what you're going to aim for in the print. Um, it was kind of like a triangle of development for me um, and... Uh, it it really helped me with uh, processing and uh, learning how to uh, do darkroom stuff. Absolutely. And sometimes three books just aren't enough. And our good friends at Time Life has produced a massive, massive library of uh, of books in which covers everything from using the camera to types of photography. And that is, of course, the Life Library of Photography. Yeah, and I'm the old guy at the table. This series came out in about 1970, 71. Yeah. And in the mid, from 1975 to 1980, back when there were five years of high school in Ontario, I remember devouring this series either either at a high school library or a public library because this was pre-internet and... It was either basically books or magazines, in addition to talking to people and learning by by doing. And the Time Life series, I think, is is just amazing, and it it holds up pretty well. The one I have in my hand is uh, photojournalism, and uh, it talks about like some of my heroes, like you know, like Kappa, like uh, W. Eugene Smith. There's also there's a book on color. There's uh, they did they did some actually yearbooks for a while. Like I only have the 1980 yearbook, and it's a great series to look at. Of course, it's completely pre digital, but hey, we're a film podcast. Last time I checked, and you can often find these at like next to nothing. Um, you can price. buy the entire series for under a hundred bucks. Yeah, uh, plus fifteen hundred dollars for shipping because it's so heavy. Yes. Um, but uh, it's it's a great series, and again, I love it because it takes me back to when I was a teenager, learning this stuff. I couldn't go to a web page, but I devoured these books. And uh, they're, they're they're built. They were printed very nicely. Nice photogravure, gravure, gravure. Thank you. That's a, that technology does not uh, match well with beer, I must say. Photogravure. Okay, editing, John. And you find a nice set. They will look beautiful. I'd I'd recommend it highly. Hmm. Absolutely, I've had I've a couple of those um, ones have come in and out, um, and I mean um, we've gone with a, a lot of more technical minded books, um, and the book that I've that I picked out of my um, selection is a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, and I'm of course talking about Fifty Portraits by uh, Gregory Hessler. And this is a book that I first um, heard about on the uh, Film Photography Podcast when um, Matt Marash mentioned this this book. So I immediately um, I immediately put it on my Christmas list and uh, got it that year because I have a hard time putting together Christmas lists. Um, and what I like about this is that you can take whatever you want out of this book. 
you can put into it and you can get out of it the same way. If you want to look at a group of stunning portraits, you can pick up this book and look at a set of absolutely stunning portraits. I mean, the one on the front just says it all. That just sets the bar high. But once you're looking at done looking at the pictures, start reading the words. You not only find the stories behind these portraits, you also learn why the photographer, Gregory, shot them that way. And then you read it a little bit again, and you learn his technique. He goes into how he lit the portraits, the cameras, why he posed the people that way. If you really want to improve your portraiture, your lighting, or even talking about your photography, this is definitely your book. Um, and just looks absolutely handsome on your on your bookshelf. It just fits in so well with all the other art books my wife and I have. And I had a hard time picking um, what book to bring from my library. And one of my initial thoughts was to bring um, Robert Kappa's autobiography slightly out of focus. Um, but it's an autobiography. It's not a photo book. But Kappa was a member of um, a photo agency called Magnum. And Bill has a book that... I would love to add to my library, and that is the Magnum contact sheets. I was very lucky. Um, I hit a sort of a milestone birthday, 50, uh, this past uh, last year, and uh, my brother got me two really nice photo books. Uh, one, Fred Herzog's Color Photography, which I'm not talking about today, which is a pity because it's a beautiful book and it's all right. But I want to talk about Magnum contact sheets. And these are the contact sheets of uh, the photographers who mattered within the Magnum agency and how they sort of arrived at that image that has become their sort of stellar this is the image they're known for. For example, they even have some of Robert Kappa's D-Day in here. Absolutely. Not a lot, because most of them got baked away. But six. Six images for the biggest invasion. How about that? Yeah, but there are the six images that mattered. But it was even... They, they go into What they did with this book is they go and do a write-up about the photographer, about the event they were covering, and then just sort of go in deep on how they sort of narrowed it down to the images that they wound up getting published and if you look at the other images on that contact sheet because this is not a small book this is no. ooh, this is something you can really seriously hurt somebody with if you're not careful and uh, a lot of the images that weren't chosen were also really good images it's not like you know there was like you know 29 dogs and and seven like keepers it's this is like all of them are worthy of being published, but out of that, they grabbed one, one. the one that mattered. And it's part of me. I'm, I'm a history. Well, I studied history at university, but it's sort of going into the history behind that event that was being covered and the thought process behind how they wound up choosing those images. That's what I like. And again, uh, Magnum is like uh, the a photo agency. Absolutely. No. I've seen this book uh, before, and just the being able to see how the story builds 
in the contact sheets um, up to and then beyond the infamous image. Um, it tells a story on its own, never mind just the photo itself. It's, it's really enlightening. Now, again, if you're a book collector, and that's an almost uh, there's almost like a sub like community of people who collect photo books. If you find one of the hardcover ones, be prepared to spend some real money. This is like well into the hundreds of dollars, like especially if it's if it winds up being autographed by I guess those who are surviving that are published. Yeah, spend some serious money, but you know you can find the paperback edition on Indigo. You can find it on Amazon, mm-hmm. or, or uh, a really good bookseller out of New York City, uh, the Strand Bookshop, which I can get lost in the photography section of that store <laughs> very easily. I look. Strand for- is incredible, eh? Oh, what yeah, a, yeah, just what an amazing. Yeah, shop. just just leave the shipping container on Twelfth and Broadway, and I'll fill it. <laughs> yeah. No. That about covers it for this show. Um, my name's Alex Lopes, and um, I don't have a witty um, response for uh, this episode, but I will say, don't try to be another photographer. Take inspiration from them, but make it your own. This is Bill Smith. Uh, building on what Alex said, find your, find your visual voice and just uh, sing with it going forward. As it's February, turn the page into new images and be your own and uh, enjoy. This is Mike Pataxi, and remember, unlike what you originally thought, Magnum isn't referring to size. Oh boy. This is Donna Pataxi, be unique and be you. (laughs) 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 Sorry, I had to do it, Mike. Anyway, uh, this is James Lee. I hope you had a lovely uh, Valentine's Day. And speaking of Valentine's Day, if you meet a girl or a guy at the bar and you they take you home and you do not see a bookshelf or any books on their shelves, do not sleep with them. <laughs> Have some bread and water, Mike. This is John Meadows, and because we're in Canada, I've tasted Labatt's 50 beer. Thank God they don't make lenses. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs>